That's part of what makes energy storage so exciting. It goes well with all assets. It makes non-dispatchable variable generation dispatchable. It makes inflexible generation that can't cycle down much flexible. It optimizes the use of all other assets in the generation fleet. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about the energy storage industry as a whole and the National Trade Association that represents this important sector of the energy industry. In past episodes, I've called energy storage an industry within an industry. There are so many families of technologies out there to help smooth out energy supply that it practically rivals the number of energy technologies that do the actual generation. So why do we need energy storage? About 10 years ago, it was practically non-existent. For the first 100 years, we simply fired up new generation as it was needed. This is what we call dispatchable generation because we can flip it on and provide energy to the masses. But when renewable energy began to grow in the last decade, quickly making up double-digit percentages of our portfolio, storage needed to enter the discussion. Wind and solar, as we know, are not dispatchable. I believe I've heard it described like a jazz musician in a symphony. These renewables come on when Mother Nature decrees, so other energy managers flip on smaller dispatchable generation to make up the difference between supply and demand, or energy must act like an accordion to smooth out the difference. And while we're on the musical metaphors, what about when renewables produce too much energy? Many utilities are starting to think of renewables like those brooms in Fantasia that kept hauling buckets of water. Storage offers a solution by banking up all the excess power and releasing it when other renewables need to take a break or customers need it. The problem is that energy storage is quickly having to catch up to an industry that can't get enough of these unruly renewables. We've discussed technologies like batteries in the past. They're good for smoothing small amounts of irregularities on the grid. They're not quite ready to dispatch hundreds of megawatts of electricity for hours at a time as if they were a coal plant. But as our guest points out, lots of investment is pouring in and the government is setting up several grants for innovators to develop these kinds of large-scale, long-time storage deployments. And it's not just batteries. In fact, I've covered several energy storage technologies over the course of the show. Of course, we've discussed battery technologies that would fit inside cargo containers on site, typically at locations like solar farms, and help dispatch power more consistently. We discussed vehicle-to-grid, whereby idle electric vehicles are used for their battery capacity to provide makeshift energy storage. Amber Energy out of California used a group of flywheels that could be spun up during low peak hours and the dispatch when demand was high. Ice Energy, also California-based, also played games with the daily cyclical demand of energy producing ice at night to run air conditioners during hot parts of the day in an effort to reduce overall demand during peak hours. But the technology that's probably the oldest 
greatest capacity and most reliable is pumped hydro storage. Almost indistinguishable from a hydroelectric dam, pumped storage pumps water back to a higher reservoir during low peak hours. During high demand, the water flows down and runs conventional hydroelectric turbines. The Bath County Pump Storage Station in Virginia is described as the largest battery in the world, capable of producing 24,000 megawatt hours of electricity. Storage is growing exponentially, much like renewables. In five short years, installations have grown from 0.3 gigawatts to 6. The market for storing solar power alone over that same period has expanded from $200 million to $19 billion. That's a lot of money for new jobs, and our guest says this sector makes both sides of the political aisle happy. They say policies like energy storage targets, similar to renewable energy targets set by states, have led to this growth. And it's not just renewable energy that wins with storage. Think about it. A lot of dispatchable generation only runs part of the day. If energy storage could bottle up excess generation from these conventional sources, as well as intermittent renewables and any other generation out there on the grid, then fewer conventional generating assets could run longer and more efficiently. When I think of a true smart grid, I picture a conductor orchestrating many types of generation using multiple energy storage technologies to regulate a steady supply of energy. That's music to my ears. My guest today is Jason Berwin, Vice President of Policy for the Energy Storage Association, the Washington, D.C.-based trade group representing energy storage in this country. Like the industry it represents, the ESA has been growing quickly. When I came up to visit them in early December, they were in one of those trendy WeWork offices, and they tell me they should be in a conventional K Street office very soon. But I thought it was cool. ESA has over 160 members, including their leadership circle, which is made up of just about every major electric utility on the planet. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Jason Berwin. We're here with Jason Berwin, Vice President of Policy for the Energy Storage Association. And Jason, energy storage, I feel it's now energy storage's time, you yes. know? And everyone wants more renewable energy, but that's not going to happen large scale without storage and stabilization solutions to even out the intermittency. What is your association doing on the storage front? Well, I think the better question is, what are we not doing on the storage front? Uh, as the, I'll take a better question. <laughs> as, as the National Trade Association representing the U.S. energy storage industry, we really are engaged in accelerating the widespread deployment of reliable and safe energy storage. We see it as a core part of an affordable, resilient, sustainable grid. There is an enormous amount to do because, as you know, the grid was not designed with cost-effective widespread available storage in mind. There's just an enormous amount about grid operations, the governance of the grid, the economics and the markets that hasn't been updated really to take account of this new technological capability. What we are doing here at ESA with respect to accelerating the widespread deployment of storage is working with policymakers, with regulators 
to really make those updates and do things that are intended to address the existing barriers to energy storage in terms of access to the grid, being allowed to compete in plannings and procurements with other resources that are more conventional, and to be able to be valued and compensated effectively for the flexibility that storage provides. Sure. And when people think of storage, I believe they only think of batteries, but I've covered a lot of different storage solutions. There's pumped air water storage. I did a flywheel episode. I did ice storage. What more could be done to incorporate storage at the utility level, you think? What makes our organization so exciting is that we represent members who work with all the storage technologies, not just batteries and not just lithium-ion battery chemistries too, like a variety of electrochemical technologies, but also mechanical storage, also thermal storage, and increasingly getting some interest on the pure chemical storage side as well with hydrogen. I think that there's a really great ferment of interest, both because of certainly what you brought up, which is this interest in going to much higher levels of generation from variable non-dispatchable resources where storage has an important role to play, but also because there's so much innovation happening in the technology space. And I think that you're going to see lots of interesting developments in terms of these different technologies because they're not static, they're not staying still, they're all growing and changing and progressing incrementally. What more could be done to incorporate storage at the utility level? We started to see a couple of years ago a real inflection where something that had been previously more or less left to the side by utilities as this is not ready for prime time yet, has started making its way more into the regular set of assets under consideration by utilities to meet their reliability and economic cost of service. When did you start seeing that shift, do you think? One of them was the beginning of storage being included appropriately in utility integrated resource planning. Mm-hmm. So back in 2016, we saw Portland General Electric do what I thought was a really groundbreaking analysis of energy storage as a potential capacity solution in its long-term resource planning, where they modeled the flexibility of storage with real granularity, sub-hourly, and we're doing doing their job to try and break out the different ancillary services costs and how that would compare to conventional resources. That was a really groundbreaking approach and one that we tried to share very widely amongst our utility members and others in the utility industry because we thought it was instructive. Before 2016, utility resource plans, they might have included pumped hydro, but when they talked about batteries, they tended to say, yeah, we're not going to include this in our modeling. It's too expensive. It's not ready. Yeah. And then 2017, the doors really started to open, we saw a dozen utilities really give this a hard look with a number of them selecting storage on a pure economic basis. Right. And now in 2018, I think the, the gates are really opening as more and more utility planners realize they have to look at this. This is really going to be a part of the solution set for capacity investment by utilities going forward. Sure. And we're talking to policymakers. I think a lot of times they probably start off with, well, I don't know about batteries. And then you have to open that conversation up and be like, hey, we're not just talking about batteries batteries, it's a whole suite Mm. of things, right? Yeah. One of the things that makes storage exciting is also part of what makes it a little challenging to understand, which is that it's a variety of technologies Mm -hmm. and they have different performance characteristics, which are more or less suited for different applications, right? For folks who are in the industry, it's something I think we intuitively understand, but for policymakers, that can get a little complicated. Kind of to book up a little bit, right? Yeah. Well, I think it's about connecting where the policymakers are in terms of what their responsibilities are. Gotcha. And that's why we don't lead with, look at these fancy gadgets that do amazing things, we lead with, hey, 
do you want to save your ratepayers some real money by avoiding excess capacity? Because storage is going to help you avoid excess capacity. Getting real wonky on the policy side, it's my understanding that storage assets can be considered either <laughs> generation or grid assets. And that distinction can make cost recovery issues challenging, can lead to these technologies not proliferating as quickly. Does the federal government need to step in and take a lead on this distinction? I kind of see this, am I going to incorporate this at a substation and this be more grid asset or is it a dispatchable generation technology? I think you're touching on something that what makes storage also exciting yeah. and a little complex, <laughs> yeah. right? Because it looks like a generator sometimes, it looks like a load other times, it looks like infrastructure sometimes. Depending how you use it, it's playing those roles which look like conventional assets, but it's also not constrained to that and it's switching between those different roles over time. So that's what makes this overall conceptually a silo buster as it were. And I think that what we're seeing is that different utilities are taking different approaches in terms of what they're presenting. What's the value proposition? So in some places, this is being procured as a part of capacity or the system. Whereas in other places, this is for substation support or this is for some sort of infrastructural role, increasing reliability on a certain line. That case is then made in a separate process. That's where things are currently. Mm -hmm. And in terms of your original question about is there some sort of federal role? Yeah. Does ESA need to be working with the members and saying, look, we need some federal level clarification on exactly how this should be interpreted? Or utilities work with a lot of different states for regulatory rate reviews, and maybe they want that kind of handled on a state-by-state -state basis. What are you seeing there? I'd say there's three considerations. The first is that it's generally disinclined to reach into state affairs when it comes to utility regulation. And, <laughs> Fair enough. You know, but the closest thing you're going to have to some sort of federal policy on this is what has come out of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission recently with Order 841. There, FERC has said, listen, energy storage is not generation. It has to have its own participation model in wholesale electric markets. There are six wholesale electric markets regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission here in the United States. Some of those wholesale markets are single state markets like California and New York. ISO stands for Independent System Operator. Yeah, thank you. And some of them are multi-state. Each of those electricity markets runs its own rules for how generation will provide energy in sort of a coordinated and regional manner. Mm -hmm. And because energy storage is not generation, when it first showed up in wholesale electricity markets, folks tried to sort of fit it into that bucket and say, listen, let us just be like a generator. The challenge, of course, is that, again, storage is not a generator. And so the way in which it was incorporated into markets was very limiting, right? Mm -hmm. In some markets, you were only allowed to do one thing, frequency regulation. In other places, there's literally no rules around energy storage. And so the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, in part at the urging of ESA and the industry, came up with a rule called Order 841, issued earlier in 2018, that specified that all of the markets need to come up with some sort of participation model 
for energy storage, distinctly for storage and the characteristics it has, not trying to keep shoehorning it into the generation bucket. And that's really groundbreaking, right? Because all of these grid operators have now had to sort of rethink through how their energy markets work, how their ancillary services work, how other parts of their market rules need to be updated to allow storage to fully participate where it's technically capable. This is a little bit controversial, but with all these efficiency measures going on and batteries, people making renewable power on site, not depending so much on utilities for power, do you think new cost models need to replace the old ones where utilities are charging more for the use of their grid? Seems like a lot of utilities are dealing with this now. People are going off grid, using a lot of solar. How are they going to be sustainable if everybody's making power off grid? First of all, our membership includes utilities, yeah. independent power producers, behind the meter developers. I will say what is interesting is we're starting to see some business model innovation, which bridges this question so it's not an either or. The customer has the asset or the utility has the asset. And you're starting to see customer side energy storage used to the benefit of the distribution system, oftentimes with dispatch control of the utility. For example, there's a pilot right now, Hawaii Electric Company is undertaken with aggregated customer sided storage, but is truly supplementing and assisting the distribution infrastructure in Pico's territory. So that's not an either or, but a both and, right? Yeah, it's fantastic. And one of the things that we always think of energy storage is something that's going to be a boon to renewables, but I talk about this a lot. There's this demand curve throughout the day, and it seems like it would be a lot more beneficial to use storage to have fewer assets online running. You're pointing at me right now going, bingo. Fewer assets running longer during the day. You use storage to play that accordion with the demand curve, so you don't have to bring on peakers for 30 minutes <laughs> once a day. A rising tide lifts all boats, right? Absolutely. That's part of what makes energy storage, again, so exciting. It goes well with all assets. It makes non-dispatchable variable generation dispatchable. It makes inflexible generation that can't cycle down much flexible. And we're talking about the big baseload nukes and coal plants yeah, and all I mean, that. The yeah. reason we have a lot of pumped hydro in this country is precisely for that purpose, right? Yeah. And it helps cycling mid-merit generation run at more efficient heat rates because you don't have to do all of that sort of crazy movement that you were talking about. In fact, that's part of why we're seeing integrated offerings. I know that GE Power has an integrated electric gas hybrid turbine yeah. because that's exactly what the battery is doing is taking some of that cycling load off of the gas turbine so that it can run at far more efficient heat rates. These kinds of efficiencies is what we see when you add storage to the grid. It optimizes the use of all other assets in the generation fleet. And that increased utilization and efficient utilization mm -hmm. is really accruing to the system as a whole. And that's why, again, we see a lot of value for grid operators in doing this. Yeah, so it seems like we're now seeing a lot of storage really because everyone wants renewables and we got to do something to help smooth out renewables. But look, I think that's going to also benefit as well as you're saying the conventional power generation. So it's not a threat to conventional baseload. It's actually a boon to that sort of stuff. It's a boon to everybody. Yeah, a quote that I heard from a colleague said, in a world in which you're in some grids going to higher and higher levels of variable generation and you also have inflexible baseload, the amount of energy storage you need to integrate those higher and higher levels of renewables is also the amount of storage you need to help 
that inflexible generation continue to operate. Right. Like it helps those assets not eat each other's lunch as much. That's why, again, we think this is a critical part of the grid of the future. We talked about this a lot. We're not just talking about batteries here. Are there any more exciting technologies you've seen in the storage sector that you think is like, hey, look at this. I know you love all your children equally I, I, and everything. I do. But, but um, <laughs> anything you're really seeing that's like, hey, you guys need to look at this as well. Uh, you know? First of all, we are excited to see with all of the attention put into battery storage, there are folks who are making advances in different chemistries that have different capabilities, particularly folks who are starting to focus on this question of much longer duration. I think there was a solicitation that ARPA-E, the Department of Energy Advanced Research Projects Agency, is funding getting to up to 100 hours of duration oh, wow. in yeah. terms of running at rated capacity. Those are chemistries that are as yet unproven. One of them is a thermoelectrochemical sodium-based chemistry. It's still electrochemistry, but there's thermal component to it as well. Yeah. And just going on that point, thermal storage has traditionally been sort of like, whatever, I've got a water chiller or a hot water heater. It's there, but I don't really think about it. And we're seeing a lot of folks take that to the next level and make very grid interactive buildings, starting to play with phase change materials and other advanced building materials that can be a part of a thermal storage solution. That's going to be more and more important, particularly as folks in northerly climates are thinking about electrification associated with heating loads. You're going to see all this stuff start fitting together in yeah. ways that doesn't make clear divisions. One example is the folks doing liquid air energy storage, high view power. Liquid air. Liquid okay. air, right? Not compressed air, which I think maybe some of your folks have heard of, but yeah, liquid air. one in Alabama. Liquid air energy storage is you're using the low, low temperature and then, of course, the change in the temperature gradient to create a generation cycle. But I think the one that's been installed in the UK is on the back end of a gas turbine. It's not like cogen per se, but you have a storage unit that's integrating with that gas cycle and has this cool that it has to offer as well. You could also see someone throwing a battery on the front end of that gas <laughs> turbine and suddenly you're getting these hybridizations showing up, which is maybe not a specific storage technology, but the way in which it's being used and integrated is highly innovative. You're in DC for a reason in energy storage as it relates to smart grids and renewables is a relatively new phenomenon. We've talked about that. As a, I don't like to say lobbyist, how about congressional teacher? What's been the most important part of the technology you've had to educate law and policymakers on? Maybe what's the biggest misconception? The biggest misconception is that this is such a game changer. <laughs> I can't wait for it to be ready. That's right. Yeah. And we have to help folks understand that, no, 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 this is in the grid. If you're a member of Congress or a congressional staffer who's paying attention to a thousand different things, you might hear about storage every now and again, just making sure folks are aware of the rapid pace of progress, not just the technology, the rapid pace of deployment. We get continuous surprise from folks saying, I had no idea. We talked to the Texas delegation. They're like, wait, we have the second most battery storage deployed from a pure megawatt basis. It's second only to California, which folks in Texas were not aware of. <laughs> but that kind of thing, right? It's right. just making sure folks know this is coming to your grid. This is not just one place. This is everywhere. As we're recording this, we're in the lame duck session. What are you guys working on right now? I think there was an investment tax credit bill. I don't want to date this too much, but give us an idea about what your legislative book is looking like for the next year. I guess. Hello, people from the future. Um, <laughs> That's right. So right now, here at the end of the congressional session here in 2018, ESA, with a broad coalition of support, has been advocating to Congress 
to clarify eligibility of energy storage for the 30% investment tax credit. Okay. That's the investment tax credit that is currently availed by solar power and a number of other technologies under Section 48 and 25D of the tax code. <laughs> I know you, you're looking up your, your audience is loving this, you're eating it up, I'm sure. The reason we're doing this is, first of all, storage is already availing the investment tax credit when it's integrated with solar power under a certain set of conditions that the IRS has sort of piecemeal identified. And that's one of the reasons why we're coming at this is just some of the uncertainty around this, right? There's You want to expand it, right? Well, it just seems just for solar is pretty narrow, right? One of the things that really has made clear to members of Congress why this is important is there are folks saying, like, listen, the storage provides the benefits to the grid regardless of whether you put it directly next to the solar or somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They can still be operated by a grid operator in tandem. Mm -hmm. And so why not make sure that the benefits accrue to folks developing wind, developing gas, who are putting in wires. It pairs with everything. Yeah. All these assets can benefit from having storage. And so it just makes sense from a technological and from an operational and from a business model standpoint that it should be accessing that investment tax credit on its own instead of continuing to sort of tie it in this sort of wonky way. You're right. It does seem very narrow and you definitely don't want things to be technology specific. You want it to be beneficial to all. Level playing field is a very critical part of this, right? Making sure that all folks on the grid can benefit from having storage as a part of their projects or their systems, making sure that all the technologies are eligible. Because one thing you do when you constrain it to a certain kind of pairing, some technologies are just not going to do that. I don't know about any sort of pump hydro <laughs> solar pairings at yeah, present, but sure. I know there are folks who are working on an innovation of floating solar on a reservoir that has a pumped hydro. Oh, it just sits on there like a barge. That yeah. would be an integrated solar hydro storage project. It it's interesting. But anyway, the point being that as of now, you also get a constrained set of technologies. And that's another thing. We want folks to choose the optimal solution for their grids by, again, making sure that it's available to pair with anything on the grid. Yeah. I'm looking at the energy sector, and I'd be surprised if there weren't fans on both sides of the aisle. Would I be surprised if that's not the case? Or is it it's pretty bipartisan, huh? We are pretty bipartisan. That's one of the things that I think is really good about having energy storage everywhere, pairing with everything. You know, you listen to the news, and it just seems like everybody's fighting, but Look, I've been at a fusion conference for the past two days, and we've had a few congressional staffers come in, one's on the minority, one's on the majority. They all seem to be about 90% simpatico on a lot of this stuff. And I think when it's happening at that level, you rise above it. Yeah, it's helpful when the Secretary of Energy under your current administration saying, this is the holy grail, folks. One thing I like to remind folks is that not this current year, but past year appropriations, the energy storage R&D account got bumped up because of Republican amendments in the yeah. House to sure. increase the storage R&D account. It gives you a sign this is not just a D issue, this is not just an R issue. This is coming across from both sides. That's why we see the investment tax credit is bipartisan. You work on the state level as well. They always talk about states being the incubators of ideas and all that. Any good pieces of state legislation that you're a fan of that you think that other states could copy and paste on? <laughs> <laughs> I will say that there's been a lot of exciting developments in the states. And the states are in many respects are leading on this from a policy standpoint. Some of the most headline-grabbing things are the development of energy storage deployment targets. We saw New Jersey 
pass legislation to establish an energy storage goal. Oh, really? That kind of thing has been driving a lot of the interest in states. And part of the reason why we see that as being helpful is because it has an orchestrating effect. When you set these targets, what you do is suddenly you have to figure out how are we going to get there? Yeah. And when you try to actually sit down and figure out how you're going to get there, that's when you start to figure out where are the roadblocks from a regulatory standpoint, what things do utilities need to know, do regulators need to know, do developers need to know in order to actually get there and produce energy storage on the system in the interest of ratepayers. Sounds to me like they're replicating, they set the renewable targets and hopefully met or exceeded them in some cases. Seems like that's what we're doing here with storage, right? Yeah. I think it's similar. One of the key differences <laughs> and what we're finding is that folks are looking at these targets and realizing that in the process of going and doing it, they're sort of sorting out the cost effectiveness where it belongs on the grid. They're targets oftentimes. They don't have compliance penalties, gotcha. which RPSs do. <laughs> and you get kind of 80% of the impact without meeting the compliance requirements as long as you have some sort of accountability. Doing all of that gets folks looking at it and saying like, wait, okay, actually this makes sense. And that's something that I think an opportunity that other states can take on regardless of the particular political position on targets. All right, fantastic. Is there anything else that's important to you guys? Gosh, good question. <laughs> what are things... What do you want to be asked? What do you want to be asked? <laughs> You're a transmission engineer, I'm right? a transmission project manager. Transmission uh, engineer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you'll like this then. One of the things that I also think is interesting that's coming up is folks are looking at storage as transmission. Okay. The idea that storage can be a part of transmission planning processes. So your earlier question, like, is this generation, is this infrastructure, right? Those planning processes tend to be siloed. And so now folks have been working on storage in generation planning and integrated resource planning. The National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners actually just passed a resolution saying folks should look at storage in long-term utility planning mm -hmm. and look at flexibility. But storage in transmission planning still is not very well developed. We know that there are a lot of utilities who are thinking about how storage acts as transmission. And so you're seeing conversations proceeding at California ISO, at MISO. There's really a chance here to extend the life of our existing transmission assets, to mitigate congestion in places where it's going to be hard or very delayed to get a wire in. And I think that's something to watch in 2019 and going forward as folks try to work out what kind of a regulatory framework you need in order to have storage providing transmission service. So that's one thing to keep an eye on. You bet. Let's paint a picture for folks what you see maybe in the future. And I'm kind of seeing a lot of stuff where you've incorporated storage to the point where that demand curve, that duck curve that they always talk about is flat. Uh, <laughs> there are grid banks and substations. What would be ESA's vision of the future? Storage everywhere. Storage I mean, everywhere. That's yeah. very easy for me to say, but it's true. It's in all parts of the grid, right? Yeah. Your generation co-located, you're directly connected to transmission or to distribution, you're customer sided, you're in microgrids. In some respects, storage has to get boring. I know that sounds <laughs> counterintuitive, but like it has to go everywhere in some respects because that's what you're seeing folks see value in. I think one of the other exciting things here is the increasing electrification of the transportation sector. Oh yeah. The batteries on wheels. Right. Not just the 
batteries on pads, right? That will also become an interesting new development in storage and the electric grid. I've covered Nuvi, vehicle right. grid, yeah. Right, or grid to vehicle. Grid, yeah, sure. But you're going to see a massive deployment of batteries into an increasingly set of interconnected sectors. Transportation, power, industrial process, heating. The greater electrification of the grid is going to need a lot of storage. And that's something that I think animates a lot of our members and we're very excited about. Well, Jason, I think you just wrote your TED Talk. No, that's fantastic. Jason Berwin, Energy Storage Association, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely, Jay. Thanks for having me. That was Jason Berwin, Vice President of Policy for the Energy Storage Association, a trade association in Washington, D.C. Jason says some of the other states besides New Jersey leading the way on energy storage include New York and Massachusetts, with Nevada and Arizona now considering adopting targets as well. And I also wanted to get this episode out before ESA's big Energy Storage Policy Forum in Washington on February 13th. You can find a link to that on our website, energy-cast.com, and plenty more pictures on Instagram at Host Energy. I want to thank Jason for hosting me at their office, as well as Michelle Blackston and Marissa Gillette for helping to set this up. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 49. Be sure to join us next week when we explore the potential to capture large-scale solar power from space. I kid you not, you won't want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.